Recycling. Reveal. Welcome to Recycling. Reveal. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Recycling Revealed. I'm Jonathan, and my guest today is Bob Hinkle. Bob is the program director at Earth Day 365, which is an organization here in St. Louis that runs quite a few environmental education and outreach programs. I've been attending their gigantic Earth Day festival for years, and they have some other really creative programs, such as Recycling on the Go, which provides recycling and composting services at festivals to divert waste from landfills. St. Louis typically has quite a few great festivals, so Recycling on the Go impacts over 500,000 people annually. Wow, you must really know your recycling facts. So we're thrilled to have you on the program, Bob. Hey, thanks so much, Jonathan. Really appreciate being here. Recycling on the go, yeah, that's kind of what I used to do until the pandemic hit and no festivals. So I took on more of a higher level program director role overseeing our Green Dining Alliance uh, restaurant sustainability program, which audits restaurants in the St. Louis region and helps them with obtaining their sustainability goals. And that can really be great cost savings as well as good for the planet, good for your pocketbook. And so diners can make a a choice to eat sustainably by going to one of 115 different uh, member restaurants here in the St. Louis region. I've been getting a lot of takeout these days, and it's nice to see um, compostable uh, utensils or, you know, the option to even not even have utensils if I have my own at home. Right. We've already worked with our restaurants, member restaurants, and restaurants themselves have seen the cost savings by actually asking diners, do you need utensils? And as a diner, do you really want to have 20 ketchup packets stuck in your glove box or in that random kitchen drawer anymore? I mean, we all have like so many of these kind of common packets. And that plastic pollution, those plastic pouches and stuff, those are really big plastic waste issues globally with all the disposable plastic pouches that manufacturers have created that people think can go through a recycling curbside program and get recycled. But really, those are a big contaminant, just like uh, plastic shopping bags and trash bags and bubble wrap and Ziploc bags and bread produce bags and zip ties, all these things that people say, well, it's plastic. We recycle plastic, don't we? Well, not all plastics can be captured by the recycling equipment to be transported and bailed and sent to a manufacturer to make new plastic objects. So the things like plastic bags and plastic wraps and garden hoses that people think and think that can be recycled because it's plastic really cause mechanical breakdowns at the recycling facilities where all of our material goes and gets sorted by high and size of material that it is. And so we created a Recycle Responsibly campaign here in the St. Louis region through 1STL.org. And we created a big marketing campaign a couple years ago to help people keep plastic bags out of curbside recycling and take those plastic shopping bags back to a grocery store, like in, in our region at Schnucks or like Target. A lot of places have plastic bag recycling receptacles. And so those actually go to a different 
different place than where your tin cans, aluminum, soda cans, your glass bottles, cardboard, mixed paper, um, your plastic water bottles. So those things go to a separate facility from the plastic bags. And we were making really great strides here in the St. Louis region with a reduction in plastic bags going through our facilities until the pandemic hit. And then we pretty much lost all of our ground that we made because people started throwing more and more stuff into recycling containers in their curbside program and contamination rates continue to rise. Yeah, well, that's what we're trying to understand today is as people who recycle in our daily lives, what can we do to recycle better? And you mentioned that awareness campaign. I've seen a lot of information online and I actually have a sticker here about sticking with the six. Can you tell me more about what sticking with the six means? Yeah, I started mentioning that a little bit, but uh, there's six types of materials that recyclers in most of our country, but especially here in the St. Louis region, are able to capture, bail, transport, sell to other operators, manufacturers to actually get the material recycled. And so we have to understand that recycling works on the economics of manufacturing into new products and that those economics are based on do we buy products that are made from recycled content? So when you look at buying a new piece of clothing, do you see if it's made out of recycled plastic fibers for your fleece shirt, you know, your recycled polyester and 50-50, you know, cotton and polyester shirt? Do you look at a yogurt container? Like say someone like Walmart, who is huge, might ask a manufacturer, I want all the yogurt containers that you sell to me and that I sell to my customers to be made out of 30% recycled plastic material, right? So we as consumers have a somewhat of a power to buy recycled products, products that are made out of recycled materials, which maintains the economics of being able to provide curbside recycling. Now, what gets in the way of those economics is when we start as consumers and users of the recycling program, putting things into the curbside cart that they don't want. They're not set up to accept these materials. They haven't wanted these materials forever. You know, recycling kind of started curbside back in the 1970s. In about 2004, in the St. Louis, Missouri region, we went to this all-in-one or single-stream kind of collection in which the recycling companies like Republic Services and Waste Management, they thought, if we can get consumers to put everything that we want into one container, we'll take it and then we'll have our people machine sorted out on conveyor belts and we'll get more volume, which means that we'd have more of a market share and ability to get our products purchased by, say, a paper pulp mill or a like an aluminum facility like we have down in Arnold, Missouri, Anheuser-Busch. If you put an, an aluminum can in recycling here in St. Louis, Missouri, more than likely that's going to end up becoming a Anheuser-Busch product on the shelf and in about 60 days. So that's a pretty quick turnaround. It's a pretty quick turnaround. Aluminum is is amazing. And I don't understand why we can't recycle more than 50% of the aluminum cans going out there because we could not be depending on Russia and Australia and other South American companies for their bauxite ore. We could be self-sufficient here if we just recycled our materials and we could rebuild our entire airplane fleets. It's outrageous just how much resources we waste by not recycling and sending things to a landfill. So. It's like recycling has some global environmental impacts beyond just, you know, reusing a couple cans. Yeah. 
let's let's step back a, a little bit first and just say the first step in environmental sustainability is to reduce our consumption. That's our first step. And when we are overloaded in, in America with convenience items from chip bags to water bottles to everything, you know, everything in between, we are creating a ton of waste through our behaviors just by, you know, so first step is to always reduce. And if you want to say, let's say you want to put solar panels on your house, first thing you should do is figure out how efficient you can be with your energy costs. So you reduce the number of solar panels you need to buy right away. And that'll reduce your overall costs on the solar panel installation by reducing the amount of energy that you need, right? So reduction has always been the first step, but people tend to feel like, oh, recycling, I'm an environmentalist, I recycle. That's like number one. And I'm like, well, really, you've kind of missed about 12 steps. Yeah, the first step has got to be, you know, kind of refusing to use stuff. So, and the last step is refuse or trash. And in between there, we have a lot of choices as consumers and as corporations and as manufacturers, some sense of corporate responsibility and being able to take materials back. That was a big thing, you know, to get back to the stick with a six, food cartons. So if you want to have your almond milk and it's shelf stable in one of those little boxes, or you like your, you know, high C grape drink and it's in a little juice box with one of those little straws, um, the manufacturer of that Tetra Pack is what it's called. Tetra Pack, it's like aseptic container, it's shelf stable, it's a little box with liquid in it. They created the machinery to be able to capture that and re and get the materials recycled out of that. It's very high quality paper. There's like an aluminum, you know, lining in them. They're able to get that material back out and recycle it. So food cartons like that is one of the six along with cardboard. And we should make sure that cardboard gets flattened before you put it in to the recycling bin to save room. And it's easier to get sorted when it's flat, when it goes to the conveyor belts in the facility. People ask me about pizza boxes. Well, no cardboard should be wet or greasy or full of cheese. You know, that that goes into your recycling bin. Right. We don't you reclaim know, the cheese at the facilities, right? They're not going to reclaim the cheese. The rats would. And, and nobody wants to come to work with a rat-infested facility. And so the health department's really, like, you know, pretty big and about keeping a clean facility. And these operators need to keep a clean facility. So when, a couple years ago, we used to send so much of our mixed paper to China. And our Republic Services folks here, I talk to them all the time, they were not doing this kind of stuff. They had really good relationships with local Midwest uh, buyers and manufacturers for their, all their products that they would sort here in St. Louis. But some some recyclers were filling container ships and their bales of mixed paper with like trash. And so all that stuff, we would actually be sending trash to China. And so about a couple of years ago, I think it was 2017, May, January 2017, China put down what they called the national sword. And they said, we are not accepting any material from anywhere that is more than like 0.001% contaminated. So if they even saw a plastic bag sticking out of a paper bundle, they would reject that container. And that created havoc across the country because people could note like tape and, you know, post-it notes and uh, staples and a little tape would, in a paper bale, would exceed that contamination level. It was an impossibility to meet that. 
Republic Services, you know, they talked to me about their bales are like less than 2% contaminated with stuff after they've sorted it all out and push it through their facility. So so they were really meeting a, a really high standard already, but that was almost an impossible standard. And I don't blame China for saying, we don't want your trash. Sure. <laughs> you know, right? So the National Sword really caused a lot of havoc. We had two facilities here in St. Louis region that were taking all of our recycling pretty much. And one of them had to shut down. He was taking like 50% of the recycling and he shut down. So there was a big shift in, in operations. Republic Services manages 80% of all of the region here in St. Louis, and that's both sides of the Mississippi River, St. Charles and some Jefferson County stuff and St. Louis County. They manage 80% of all the recycling here in the region, and it goes through two facilities that they have. And when you're pushing 500 tons of material through your operation a day, and then you have to shut down four times to clean off by hand plastic bags that have wrapped around your gearing, that's a, a really huge impact on the economics of your operation. And you're putting workers at risk. It's mostly automated, but people are still surprised when you go on a tour, which tours are available to go through their facility. So tours are amazing. I highly recommend yeah, those. They're really great because then you actually see, oh, there are a couple of people on the line and they're trying to grab the big, you know, problem things like something that's way too big, something bigger than a plastic five gallon bucket, right? Uh, might come through and they that would hurt. So they'll try and grab that. They'll try and grab all the plastic wrap off hangers that people have, you know, and then people put needles you know oh, people will say well i'll put all my needles into a two liter bottle or a laundry laundry detergent bottle and that's a great idea you know for safety but then they'll go hey that's all recyclable right you know i've got a metal needle it's a plastic syringe and it's inside a laundry detergent bottle but all of those materials are different and when it goes through the truck that transports it the compactor truck and then things like that those things break open and then workers get needle sticks which can lead to infection, disease. And so it's really dangerous, dangerous things. So people should throw away their needles because now you have a metal and a plastic container that are put together. It's like when you go to the subway or a sandwich shop and you get a paper and foil wrapped, you know, burrito or something. There's paper on one side and it's in foil on the other. Those are two separate materials that need to go to two different places in the country. And those guys on the line at the material recovery facility are not going to split the paper apart in the foil to get them to two different bins. So that's really just trash. Paper cups is another thing. People go, oh, they're made out of paper, but they a lot of them have a plastic lining or they have a, a grease-resistant, water-resistant lining in them, and they're designed not to break down in water. So that's how paper pulp is made. You take the mixed paper, you put it into a vat of water, and you know, churn it all up, and the paper cups just don't don't break down. And so those are contamination in the paper string. But people think it's paper, so I can throw it in there, right? So the stick with the six campaign. So we talked about food cartons. We talked a little bit about cardboard. I've talked a little bit about mixed paper is number three. Glass bottles. People feel like, oh, I can put like window and mirror glass in there. But no, they want the glass bottle. It was the typical Coca-Cola brand type glass bottle. Um, right. There's that's a difference what they want. between like tempered and untempered glass, right? Exactly. The, the tempered. too strong to break down properly. Yeah. The same with like Birex, you know, your baking dishes. Um, so those, it's kind of interesting when you put like some,
something that's ceramic or something that's tempered like that, it doesn't melt at the same temperature. So it might become like a little stone that can churn its way and create a hole in the kiln that's melting the other stuff. And now you have melt molten material that could be falling onto the floor of a facility, potentially burning burning people, right? So ceramic mugs are, are things like that. People are trying to put in there so... So that's what, four things? I said food cartons, cardboard, mixed paper, glass bottles. Uh, now we got to get to the metal cans and aluminum cans. And people think, oh, I'll throw my paint can in there. Well, paint can is like loaded with paint in it, right? So they really don't want anything that has extra liquids in there. Well, you know, if you don't drink everything out of the water bottle, they don't want the liquid. And then the liquid will get the paper wet. And they want dry paper. So those are those are some things that people may or may not think about in when they're recycling. Now I'm not worried about the peanut butter jar that you know you've gotten the last of your. Pe- I mean, if you're a peanut butter lover like I am, you're scraping out that peanut butter anyway. Definitely. But you know you don't need to clean it all the way out. It's not going to fall out and contaminate paper. But for ease of disseminating a message, everything that goes into a recycling bin needs to be empty, clean, and dry. And if you follow that rule, everyone will be happy, right? As far as, you know, don't put water bottles that still have half the water. I don't understand why people, you know, working at festivals and events, I saw people take one drink out of a water bottle, you know, and then they throw the rest of the water away. For me, my environmental ethic is just is kind of a wilderness ethic. And so I walk around the city with a little backpack. I've always got my own water bottle. I've always got my bamboo cutlery to use. So I'm not having to deal with that. I probably always have a layer of like rain gear with me. It's kind of a lifestyle. But I know a lot of people just don't want to be like that. And so they count on the resources in the community to get through their day. For our um, listeners at home, Bob is wearing his wide brim Tilly hat right now <laughs> inside on the interview. Yeah, I I can't uh, not wear that Always anymore. Always prepared. Always prepared. Yeah, wilderness stuff. So what else is on that stick with the six? Uh, thing that Last we need to thing cover? is plastic bottles and containers. You touched on that a bit with the with the peanut butter. Yeah, we've been, we've been going in and out of uh, that stuff, right? So yeah, um, just read through this one more time. It's It's paper, it's flattened cardboard, it's plastic bottles and containers, glass bottles and jars, metal food and beverage cans, and food and beverage containers, like the orange juice carton that you mentioned earlier. And that was the thing that I was surprised to learn about was even recyclable in curbside because it's such a weird feeling material and I'd always been told not to put like waxy papers or glossy papers in the bin. So that was cool to learn about. Yeah, that's a that was an interesting uh, piece to get those food cartons. And so, you know, packaging, plastic packaging has, you know, I don't blame the consumer right now for all the contamination because it's recycling should be easy, you'd think. Right. But because right. we have such a glut in the market of, of a variety of different styles and types of plastic materials, it's really hard to know what can or can't be recycled. And we tried to look at the resin codes that are on plastic containers. So you'll see the three arrows and a triangle with a number in the middle of them. And, yeah, right. and people say, oh, it has that symbol. So that means it's recyclable. But that came from the chemical companies so that you knew what re- chemical resin, what plastic resin. Was it a polyethylene or was it a high density? Was it a polyvinyl? Was it a polystyrene? And so those are important things for manufacturers of products to know if 
I'm going to collect plastic and put it into my system to create new products, I need to make sure that it's all the same type of plastic because they all act differently in the process of making new products. And so the chemical industry symbols, those little resin code symbols, are not a guarantee that something is recyclable. So you might see a number, you know, a number two or number three, like on a plastic bag. And I've already told you that plastic bags are not supposed to go into the recycling uh, curbside thing because the material recovery facility machinery has been designed around size and shape and how things transport. And so paper is flat and lightweight. And so they designed it to kind of float a above the three-dimensional containers that go through our system. And so if, if you're hoping that something is lighter weight and it's going to rise to the surface of all the recycling, then anything that you put into the curbside bin that mimics that, like a flattened plastic bottle, if you flatten your plastic bottle, it now has become more of a piece of paper than, than a three-dimensional container. And then it has more likely chance of going into the paper line and contaminating paper. So those are things that people don't know about. And like plastic packaging that's like around, I don't know, cosmetics, a toothbrush, um, things that are on pegboards at retail outlets. And you have all this different plastic packaging. That stuff's really lightweight. And it's not the same kind of stuff that they've wanted from the beginning, which was basically your water bottles. So, and your detergent bottles. So understanding that as consumer makes it tricky because you have to have an understanding of how material flows through the facility on conveyor belts and how it gets bounced around. And, and we try to use physics to sort it out rather than uh, human hands and eyes. The machinery that they use is just amazing. They have like lasers that try to detect what the different materials are. And they have these high-powered blasts of air to knock things off of the conveyor belts into different bins well that's that's for the plastic for the plastic line but it has to get to that line first right and so if it's flattened a plastic water bottle is flattened it ends up in the paper line but if it stays whole and is empty then it rolls into the container line and then the optical scan sorters can pick it out as a number one plastic resin or a number two and on the first pass they'll be looking for number ones and if the optical scanner picks it up as a number one, a puff of air, you know, propels that container off the line and into a bunker. But if that water bottle has, you know, is half filled with water, that puff of air is not strong enough to get that container off the line. So it gets dumped into the next line, right? Which now will be going through and the optical scanners will look for number two, like your laundry detergent bottles, right? And the same thing. Eventually it would just end up being, you know, at the end of the line going into trash. Our facilities will send trash to the landfill, but it's really your trash that you should have sent to the landfill at your curbside. But you put it in the recycling bin, and now they have to deal with it. So they're not sending recycling to the landfill from their facilities. I think overall people want to recycle and are, and are trying hard to, to do the right thing. It's just they might not always know what the right thing to do is. But I see a lot of... Um, bins when I'm walking my dog and they'll be full of recyclables that are bagged like they're in these garbage <laughs> bags and yeah what I learned from my tour is that if you put your recyclables even if you've scrubbed out your peanut butter jars and dried it in on a rack properly for three days or whatever before sticking it in your bag if you stick it in the bag then that whole bag isn't going to get opened to get sorted that whole bag is going to get diverted to the landfill. 
So they want everything loose, clean, empty, and dry, right? I forgot about loose. That was the big thing to keep the plastic bags out of there. So that's a really good point about, you know, the plastic bag being a great way to contain things and to transport materials from your house to the recycling cart, or in our case, in the city of St. Louis, the dumpsters, which is like the worst way to provide recycling, because then there's no personal feedback loop that we can provide. You know, everyone has access to a dumpster in an alley in St. Louis, and we don't know who didn't break down their boxes, who, when they took the boxes, left the bubble wrap and the styrofoam forms inside it or the, you know, strap, plastic strapping inside of it. We don't know that. And there's no way for them to understand that that shouldn't go in there, right? The dumpster system in in St. Louis is just a real problem. We have people with individual rolling carts for recycling, and we're rolling out different oops tag programming. We put the carts out, and then we have staff actually look inside your cart, and we'll tag it with, hey, way to go. Good job. Everything looks good. Or, nope, this is rejected because there's, you know, plastic bags, a big wheel, plastic toy in there, you know, clothing, garden supplies, tools, propane tanks. People will try and wish cycle anything. I mean, I was at a facility and he showed us like nails and tools that people have thrown in the recycling. A mounted deer head came through. Ammunition. Oh, man, that's, yeah. that's awful. And so there's just, just because it's metal doesn't mean that it's going get, to get captured either. And that can be a problem. They really want to not throw things in the landfill. We've gotten that message out, but... I think people still want the convenience of throwing stuff away and not having to deal with it. When we have a very robust community of upcyclers and reusers of materials here in the St. Louis region from Refab and Restore from Habitat Humanity, Refab St. Louis, these guys deal with building supplies. They even take down buildings and get into the reuse market for home remodeling and, and improvements, all the things that you can use. Textiles by like Remains or Use Again, US Again for clothing, even. Um, I mean, we had a, a program that was even for uh, reusing bras, shoes, all kinds of different materials like that. Bicycle works, you know, we'll take your bikes and uh, provide those for kids that need bikes and try and reuse them or help deal with the scrap metal market. And their sister uh, program, Bite Works, that takes your old computers. Yeah, right. And so kids can learn bike maintenance and get a bike at the end. There's some really great reuse organizations in the St. Louis region. We did a blog post on our earthday-365.org website last June or something in the pandemic that kind of outlined a bunch of donation centers, places that you can take your material. So it really, it does come down to consumers. If you're going to buy something, trying to be accountable to not throw it in the landfill can be a tough deal. Um but it does take a little bit of work. There is places for medical home health supplies that can get recycled through STL Help. So there's a lot of different programs out there that people can connect with. Yeah, St. Louis definitely has a lot of great programs for that. And I know it's a very localized thing what the different recycling or I guess the material recovery facilities can can take. Um, So I guess let's try to figure out in general, what should our listeners do if they live outside of St. Louis? Maybe check with their cities. That's a really great point there, is that even in our St. Louis region, you know, 20% of the folks are going to small recycling operations that are like transfer stations, and they may not take food cartons, for example. Really important to, when you go to a recycling facility, see what they accept or don't accept. And 
and be mindful of that. Don't give them stuff and hope and wish that it will get recycled because they know better. Yeah, you used um, the term wish cycling earlier. Yeah, that's just being generous. <laughs> um, you know, I, I try to have grace for, you know, humanity. I know we're all under a lot of stress and we're trying to do the right thing and move forward, but we've set ourselves up with systems and structures that really make it challenging for us as, as community-minded people to be mindful of our carbon footprint and the impacts that, you know, we've really hidden a lot of our impacts on society through a lot of systemic structural issues. Okay, Bob, would you say that curbside recycling still has a net environmental benefit then with all of these challenges in mind? I think I would. And what gives me the reason why is a publication called Drawdown. They uh, took a lot of really a lot smarter people than me to analyze a lot of data around how best can we draw down carbon dioxide out of our atmosphere to reduce climate change. And recycling is about number 60 out of the 100 ways that you can do that. So taking a look at like geothermal, wind, solar, but also educating women and girls girls across the world. Those are really important things. Composting food waste. Food waste still ends up in the landfill way too much. And so if we can reduce wasted food, and if you do have wasted food, food scrap materials, then those are things that you should, you know, find somebody who has, you know, goats or chickens nearby, pigs, you know, that might want to eat it, compost it in your backyard. We are going to be rolling out a residential composting wasted food scrap collection point at the Tower Grove Farmer's Market and Ferguson Farmer's Market this this season. And it's not like I want you to haul your food scraps over to me because we also have a lot of small operators like BLH Farm and New Earth and Brennan City Composting, most shrooms. So there's these small time operation operators that are willing to do curbside pickup of your food scraps. So really take a look in the St. Louis region. And I just saw some out in Ohio and Rochester, New York, and you know, these residential composting food waste is happening around the country. People are really into composting. I personally love composting as a way to regenerate our soils and to get nutrients that would otherwise end up in the landfill, off-gas methane, which is hundreds of times more potent as a greenhouse gas and increasing global warming than carbon dioxide. And so landfills off-gas a lot of methane before they can capture it and turn it into energy or just burn it off. Um, So trying to keep organics like food and lawn trimmings and tree branches and other kinds of plant material out of landfills is really important to um, the overall health of our planet. So these small operators are helping to collect from from the curbside, from your front porch, food scraps and putting them into their urban farms and nutrifying the soil, putting the carbon and those nutrients back into the soil so that we can regenerate our soils. And when you have good, healthy soils, you grow good, healthy crops. If you grow good, healthy grass, you get good, healthy cows. And so a cow farmer is really a grass farmer when he's really being sustainable. Hmm. But this is all beyond the disposable recycling message that we were talking about. But I just can't help it when I start talking about any of these aspects that are interrelated as kind of lifestyle changes and community changes. We can implement and take a look at policies in your municipal areas and affect change 
It's like, you know, we people start talking about white privilege. Well, you can use that privilege, that space in which you are making policy to help change policy, change structures that have historically removed resources from certain communities. So we're working with Nick Speed, with Wajima at the Penrose uh, North City Farm, trying to, you know, he's doing some urban farming and job training and programming. Tyran Lewis with Heyru Urban Farming, also working in North City, North County, to help deal with systemic structural issues that have disinvested from the community. And through their resilience and through their energy, they are recreating community and food resources and food apartheid zones that were disinvested from in the 70s when a lot of white people fled out of the city, took all their resources and energy and moved out into the county. And we're left with a city infrastructure with vacant lots and people, you know, really struggling to get by. And so let's take a look at how we can change some of the policies and get resources back into the area. That's really cool. It sounds like uh, recycling kind of because it's typically run at the community level really has the ability to impact communities and to be kind of a catalyst for other community building efforts and lead to the kind of change that we want to see. We've always thought about recycling as kind of a, a gateway into sustainability. Yeah. But the issue that I find is that people stay in the doorway and they just block progress on the rest of it by just standing in the doorway. That's oh, yeah, I'm recycling and that's all I'm doing, you know? So it's really important, you know, that we as an organization have really looked at who we were and we were working with a lot of these festivals um, and events and going, yeah, we're helping these festivals, but is that really helping the people that live in these neighborhoods? And so we are really trying to, you know, work with Dutchtown and um, North Newstead Association, the uh, a Red Circle, and go, what are you seeing are, are major issues in your community? You know, a lot of it is like illegal dumping, littering, you know, things are just a mess and they, people just feel like their area has no value. And, and so they just want some help in getting things some cleaned up, helping people, you know, beautify and get some a new sense of ownership and self-respect in their space. There's a difference when you go to O'Fallon Park in North city in which there's no maintenance for the trash and all of a sudden trash is everywhere and people go, these people just litter. Well, you go to another park like Tower Grove Park, they have a guy every day cleaning up the park oh, and managing the trash, right? If you don't have resources, then, and it takes people power. It always takes people power. It takes resources to maintain things no matter where you are in the city or in the county. You know, I've seen people litter, you know, out in Eureka, just throw stuff right out their window. I've seen, you know, so it's not like people in the city litter more. It's that nobody's got any money to pay somebody to clean it up. Sure. Certain communities have have the resources to have the staff to take care of uh, problems like that. That's what I think. And so, you know. I'm kind of done with the blame game on people, you know. It's not a zero-sum situation. You know, Heather McGee just wrote a great book about the sum of us, and the cost of racism on all of us. We live in a zero-sum game, and that's not how life is. Just because you get something doesn't mean that I lose something. 
Sure. And uh, great but we live in that situation that it's a win lose kind of phenomenon. But I think all boats can rise. We've been lucky to have grant funding from Solid Waste Management District of St. Louis and Jefferson County and the DNR, Department of Natural Resources, to help leverage funds and resources to help bring resources to other areas of the of our community and that all boats rise. Like our composting outreach program that we're going to start up at farmers markets, I'm hoping will help bring a whole level of green job economy for the local small time composters to get business their way. And just, I'm hoping that, you know, all boats will rise and people will be able to recycle efficiently. They'll be able to compost efficiently. We'll be reducing our, our consumerism. We'll have less waste to manage and the waste that we do get, we'll be able to funnel that into different areas for reuse and or recycling. Okay, listeners. So you've heard the call to action from Bob Hankel. We know that you want to recycle because you're sending more materials than ever to the facilities. It sounds like <laughs> with these tips that Bob has given you, we can make that more effective. And Bob is challenging you to get out of the doorway and to actually participate and uh, let's help all those boats to rise. Bob, what are some ways that people can maybe volunteer or get involved with some of the efforts that you're running? Yeah, check out our website, earthday-365.org. We've got some volunteer days of action coming up here in April. April 10th is a garden work day up at Pine Lawn. As a part of that day, I'm hoping to have some volunteers that can do the Marine Debris Tracker Program, which is a mobile app that tracks land-based plastics because anything that's thrown on the ground will end up in a sewer drain and be pushed and flushed out into the Missouri River. And ocean plastic waste is a phenomenon that is a real deleterious to the entire planet and is a huge problem right now. Yeah. So yeah. we are part of a April research program through the University of Georgia that St. Paul, Minnesota, St. Louis, Missouri, and Baton Rouge, Louisiana are going to be doing this marine debris tracker program. You just download the app, you go out for a certain amount of time, and you catalog under the MRCTI list in the mobile app, which it stands for the Mississippi River Cities and Towns Initiative. One Mississippi.org is housing the Mississippi River Plastic Pollution Initiative, and you can learn a bunch of information about how to do that. And that's happening from April 1st to like the 18th. So April 10th, we've got a garden day. April 18th, we're going to be at O'Fallon Park, working with the community, North Newstead Association, some eco-restoration and litter cleanup up there at O'Fallon Park, beautiful park. Working with Dutchtown, April 24th, doing a litter cleanup in their community improvement district around Merrimack and Grand on April 24th. And May the 16th to the 25th is Green Dining Week, so you can just eat at some of our green dining restaurants and during that week, and they'll donate 20% of their, uh, some of their profits to Earth Day 365 to help us provide some funding for restaurants and to help them get back on their feet after this pandemic. So those are a few ways to, to get back in touch. Check out Earth Day, that's E-A-R-T-H-D-A-Y-365.org for more information. Bob, this has been fascinating. Thank you so much for this great conversation about recycling and what we can do to empower our communities and uh, help all of our boats rise together. Jonathan, thank you so much. Recycling. 
Recycling-related information. Check out our website at recyclingrevealed.wixsite.com/recyclingrevealed. Follow at Recycling Revealed on your favorite social media platforms, and of course, be sure to subscribe to Recycling Revealed wherever you get your podcasts.